So I want to welcome Marilyn Golden from the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund. Marilyn uh, has been doing work with DREDA for, I don't know, how many years, Marilyn? Since 1988. Since 1988. Uh, and I've known Marilyn uh, since that time, actually. Um, and she is their transportation expert, and I do mean expert. And she is going to be, she's, we're talking to her from her home in, in um, Berkeley, uh, California. Um, and she is going to discuss with us the recent circular issued by the Department of Transportation um, with its policy interpretations under the Americans with Disabilities Act as that applies to the Department of Transportation. Marilyn, you want to add anything to that? Just go ahead. Thank you so much, Chris, um, who I always appreciate the chance to work with. Um, hi, everyone. Um, is it correct that Alice is not there? Not here yet. Not there yet. I can, by the way, I can hear you all pretty well, probably well enough. Um, you can hear me okay, right? Yes. yes. Great, very good. All right, well, as Chris said, um, I was asked to talk with you about this publication that came out last November, relatively new, from the Federal Transit Administration, which is a subdivision of the U.S. Department of Transportation. It's um, a circular on the ADA, which they put out to their grantees, public transit agencies that run transit agency, you know, transportation programs, um, rail systems, fixed route bus systems and ADA paratransit systems. Not Amtrak, but commuter rail, light rail, and um, um, rapid rail, subways. Um, this circular theoretically does not put out any new information. Um, but it is advertised by FTA, I think, quite accurately as a source of one-stop shopping for people interested in anything about ADA transportation because it brings together information from the original ADA regulation back in 1990 and the DOT ADA regulation interpreting it that came out in uh, the original statute, I should say, and then the original reg in 91 and also its explanatory appendix. But even more importantly, it brings in FTA interpretations of how to interpret the rules under the ADA uh, in actual enforcement situations with transit agencies from administrative complaints filed with um, DOT, also from compliance reviews that FTA has conducted of transit agencies, um, and what they call triennial reviews. Every three years, FTA does a thorough review of every transit agency, not only the ADA, but many, many things about the transit agency I can't even begin to list. Um, but they've always covered a little bit about the ADA, and in more recent years they've added ADA questions. And as there's more and more coordination in FTA, anyway, they're just doing more and more ADA. So every three years, every transit agency is reviewed, and there are interpretations made. And a lot of that has been brought into the circular. So there's a lot of good stuff in here. Dredis, my I should have started by saying I'm senior policy analyst with the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. We're a national law and policy center. 
on disability civil rights based here in California uh, in Berkeley with the Governmental Affairs Office in Washington, D.C. Um, I've worked on ADA transportation since, you know, I've worked on transportation since before there was an ADA. And um, we are pretty fierce advocates. I'll let people who's familiar with our work characterize us as they wish. But we pride ourselves on not um, selling people with disabilities civil rights short ever in any way that if we could possibly avoid it. And we have done a lot of work um, urging the regulations to be as strong as possible, putting out model comments. And I think this circular is a terrific document, and I encourage people to utilize it. So let me just tell you some of what's in it. Um, there's a ch chapter one talking about what the circular is and what it contains. There's a chapter two on general requirements, including things like lifts and ramps and securement use, which may not be as germane to you, service animals, which I know is quite germane, um, oxygen, people with disabilities who need oxygen and must ride public transit, accessible information, et cetera. Also, a section on the reasonable modification of policy, hallelujah, which was itself a new section of the ADA regulation that came out after the draft circular was released, but before the final came out, and so I'm glad they included it. I'll talk about that. There's a chapter three on transportation facilities, chapter four on vehicle acquisition, chapter five on equivalent facilitation, chapter six on fixed route service, which I was asked to really focus on today, chapter seven on demand responsive service, chapter eight and nine on paratransit, uh, chapter 8 on operations and Chapter 9 on eligibility. Uh, there's a Chapter 10 on passenger vessels and um, 11 and 12 on some other things. There's a huge amount of information here, and our time is fairly short. Um, so I'm frankly a little worried about getting everything out to you that I think is important and still giving us the time to have discussion. But um, I'm going to do my best to try. Um, There is a general discrimination against, a general prohibition against discrimination in the DOT ADA regulation, and it applies to things like prohibiting an individual with a disability from serving as a personal care attendant for another person with a disability. I like that example. There's a number of examples. Um, there's a prohibition against imposing special charges. Um, and one example they use, which I think is germane, very germane today, is imposing a fee for complimentary paratransit riders or their companions for canceling trips or if a trip is no-showed. Now, there are a lot of rules around ADA paratransit no-shows um, that we will go into when we get to that point. But um, one of... of Excuse me, one second. These days, due to medication, I'm drinking a lot if I talk a lot, so I had to drink some water. Um, there's um, a very important interpretation that's been made um, that one thing you cannot do in the realm of no-shows is charge people extra because they cancel or even no-show a trip. Now, you can get punished in other ways for no-shows, but not 
by being forced to pay money. So that's an important ruling because some transit agencies have been charging riders for cancellations and no-shows. Not okay. Um, moving on from that, there's a lot of information, as you might imagine, on um, the structure of the bus, a lot of things about wheelchair access that I am going to make the wild assumption that may not be the most important things for you to hear. Please let me know when, you, when we get to questions. If I'm wrong, I'm going to stop periodically for questions. Good option. Um, I understand that people have multiple disabilities. I just want to give you the most relevant stuff here. Okay. Let me go right to the service animal section. Um, transit agencies may not have a policy requiring riders provide documentation for their service animal before boarding a bus or train. This is probably a rule that's familiar to you because it's been part of the ADA for many years now. Um, transit agencies may refuse to transport service animals that are deemed to pose a direct threat to the health or safety of drivers or other riders, or that create a seriously disruptive atmosphere or are otherwise not under control of the rider. For example, a rider with a service animal is responsible for ensuring the dog does not bite the driver or other riders. Um, something that I had not seen though, which is in the circular, had not seen before, Conversely, a dog that barks occasionally would not likely be considered to be out of the owner's control. That makes sense to me, and I say it because it's not something we've seen written in written policy before. A passenger's request that the driver take charge of a service animal may be denied. Uh, we'd like to see an exception in the case of a wheelchair user going up on the lift we can talk more about that if you like. There's a section um, of this saying that um, the, D the ADA does not prescribe limits on the number of service animals that accompany a rider on a single trip. Different service animals may provide different services. Also, other riders or the agency personnel's allergies to dogs or other animals would not be grounds for denying service to a person accompanied by a service animal. The regulations explicitly state that service animals must be allowed to accompany individuals on vehicles and in facilities. Encountering a service animal in the transit or other environment is an expected part of being in public. Um, let me move to the session on, section on accessible information. For individuals who are blind or have low vision, um, accessible formats to written materials include, for example, large print, braille, audio tape, and electronic files usable with text-to-speak technology, also known as screen reader technology. As discussed in Appendix D to a section of the regulation on paratransit eligibility, they quote, um, Information does not necessarily need to be made 
in the format a requester prefers, but it does have to be made available in a format the person can use. There's no use giving a computer disk to someone who does not have a computer, for instance, or a Braille document to a person who does not read Braille. Um, if an individual requests schedule information on audio tape but can use electronic files, an electronic format is acceptable. Asking the writer which routes he or she will be using and creating audio files for only those routes is also acceptable if it meets the writer's needs. Uh, on the issue of websites, um, FTA suggests that transit agencies review the Department of Justice guidance, accessibility of state and local government websites to people with disabilities. Um, for technical guidance on making websites accessible, they recommend seeing the Access Board Section 508 standards for electronic and information technology, which apply to the federal government and address access to websites and other electronic information for people with physical, sensory, or cognitive disabilities. Um, there's a section on training. The ADA requires uh, staff to be trained to proficiency. They define that, that once trained, personnel can consistently and reliably operate accessibility features, provide appropriate assistance to individuals with disabilities, and treat riders in a respectful and courteous manner. Rider comments and complaints, uh, oh, rider comments and complaints can be the ultimate test of proficiency. Um, Comments that reveal issues with the provision of service may serve as good indicators that employees are not trained to proficiency. Um, what else in this chapter? And then I want to stop for questions. Ah, okay. Reasonable modification of policy. Modifications in policies, practices, and procedures. Um, a section on this has now been finally adopted into DOT's own ADA regulation. I will spare you the history of this troubled part of the ADA, but now we have it. Um, and it means that, and it essentially says that public entities, which include transit agencies, that provide designated public transportation shall make reasonable modifications in their policies, practices, or procedures when necessary to avoid discrimination on the basis of disability or to provide program access to their services subject to certain limitations, which I'll address in a second. Um, I'm going to look for examples that I think would be most helpful to to, ACE, to, PU, to this particular audience. Um, this provision went into effect last summer, almost exactly a year ago. In a couple weeks, it'll be a year, um, four months after the publication of the final rule. Um, the section requires transit agencies to respond to requests for reasonable modifications of policies and procedures and requires agencies to make information about the process for requesting reasonable modifications readily available to the public. 
the limitations on having to provide modifications of policies, practices, and procedures are when the request would fundamentally alter the nature of the entity, the transit agency's goods and services, when it would cause a direct threat to the health and safety of other people, um, or um, in the case of federal funding, there is, I think there's an undue administrative or financial burden limitation in here somewhere. Um, the circular gives some good, strong examples for what the exceptions would be, uh, showing us that these are high standards and hard to meet. So for example, granting a request for modification that would fundamentally alter the provider's services. Um, example, a request for a vehicle in paratransit um, Oh, a request for a dedicated vehicle in paratransit. So if you ask for a vehicle that takes you and nobody else, that might be, that might would be a fundamental alteration. Or a request that a fixed route bus deviate from its normal route to pick somebody up. That's clearly a fundamental alteration of what a bus does, which runs on a fixed route. So fundamental alteration being a very high standard. Um, they give a very high standard for what a direct threat is, a safety risk. Um, which I can give. I'll let you ask for it if you like, because I feel uh, an important need to keep moving here. Um, here's an interesting example from a series of webinars that FTA did about this part of, well, it was either on the reasonable modification regulation or it was on the circular. They did some webinars on the circular, and somebody asked from a transit agency, if an ADA passenger, well, I don't know what that means, if a, I'm going to call it a passenger, um, I don't know what an ADA passenger is, if a passenger request, oh, this is probably, the, the meaning was an ADA paratransit passenger, is requesting to receive a phone call prior to or upon arrival at their pickup, are we required to call? Um, the FTA Office of Civil Rights responded, not necessarily. You will need to determine on whether the individual needs the call in order to use the service and for you to provide what's called origin to destination service, which basically means door-to-door -door service if the person needs it due to a disability. Not necessarily said to dreadeth that sometimes it might be required to get a phone call before um, you know your paratransit ride. So that is a general chapter. Um, and the next topic I was going to do is a general fixed route service chapter. So before I do, let me see what questions you have now and what Alice told me she worked out is to take one or two questions after each section and then to go on and then if we finish, go back and take more questions. I don't know that I have a good way to call on people. Is there someone there who can assist me with that? I'm here, Marilyn. Sorry, I was a little late. Um, if you have a question, uh, is there somebody who can carry the mic? Okay, we're going to bring the mic to you and, and ask your question. And we will just take two questions now, and at the end, if there's time, we'll take more.
Hi, this is Lori Scharf. Um, I have a question regarding what I consider, and my transit provider does not, an accommodation. They purchased, I don't know what kind of van it is because I'm not like a car person, and they purchased these vans which are low floor vehicles that have the ability to, um, they have a ramp that, you know, pulls, that they put down. It had a middle seat, which was fine, and then it has two back seats, which are, I'm 5'5", and the seat height probably is, when I sit on the seat, there's a footrest that flips down, and there's a good four inches from that footrest to the floor. I am a guide dog user, and when traveling with my dog, they have removed the carpeting in the vehicle, for wheelchair access, and the wheelchair tie-downs are located directly under the footrest. There is no way to restrain the dog at my feet because my feet are not at the floor. And there's no nothing between myself in the back seat and the driver's seat anymore because out of the 33 vehicles purchased, in order to appropriately accommodate wheelchair users in 28 of those vehicles, they remove the middle seat, which a person that is a guide dog user could sit in adequately and hold the dog at their feet. They tell me that they can't um, like make a notation on the file and I just have to deal with it. <laughs> so I, I, I have concerns that sometimes the safety of our dogs is not seen when regulations go into effect and we're not viewed as needing accommodations in those types of situations. I just was wondering if you could comment on that. Uh, I have, I'm having a little bit of trouble um, making out what you're saying, I, but I think I got most of it. Um, what, I, what I think I'm hearing is that uh, this is paratransit, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, what I what I believe I hear you saying is that because of a, a footrest and because of other configuration in the in the vehicles that were procured, um, you can't kind of restrain your dog with your feet so that the dog's safety is at risk in transit. Yes. Um, this is something FTA understands. And I think, and oh, and I think you also said the transit agency basically is, you know, <laughs> shining you are, you know, shining you on, not saying you have to, too bad, and we can't help you. Um, that, I, you know, this is a situation where I would suggest you file a, a written administrative complaint with the Federal Transit Administration Office of Civil Rights. I um, sent Alice a link the other day, your conference may have already started, but I was preparing for this and I realized that people may, that I just realized that, you know, compliance questions are going to come up and I had a feeling that people, you know, I may be in a position of saying, this sounds like you should file a complaint and here we are, question one. Um, and I don't have, didn't have sort of a way to, to get, you know, the information to you about how to do that, but I sent Alice a link that I hope she can manage, you know, get sent out to everybody. There's a, a link for how to file a complaint with the FTA Office of Civil Rights on anything FTA covers, the ADA being one thing. So you have to check off that it's on the 
sorry, not check off, but you have to indicate. I believe this. I believe their complaint form is now a fillable form on the web. But last I knew, it was fillable, but then you had to print it and send it in. So I brought that to their attention, and I think they were going to try to change it. And I, I could kind of check really quick right now, but um, I didn't. I haven't had a chance to check on if if it's better than the last time I talked to them, which was some months ago. So it may be. But this seems to me. I mean, they have to give you a way, you know, if you're, the, the right to travel with a service animal means, has consequences, and one of them is that it's a safe ride for both you and the animal, and it's very standard for a rider to constrain their animals with their legs, and, you know, I think FTA will say that the transit agency has to figure something out. That's, that's, that's simply my opinion. I'm, I'm not FTA, but I, I think they would be behind you on this. I mean, it does sound to me like uh, that the transit agency is acting in a way that's inconsistent with the ADA. Okay, I have a question. Uh, my name is Paul Hunt from Austin, Texas. Um, I want to understand whether our transit agency is provide, is uh, doing conditional eligibility correctly. Give me a scenario what happens. Um, when you go through eligibility certification, uh, blind people are evaluated by occupational therapists who have no training in orientation and mobility. In addition, they don't, we don't have any orientation abilities on the agency staff to help us deal with, you know, routes when things change, that kind of thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was general. <laughs> we can do that, sure. Okay. Anything else before we go on? You may cover some of this later, because, but you did mention that you could not ask for a bus to be, to be moved to come and pick a person up. Um, in Dallas, um, the bus stops are, are a real pain to find if you happen to go somewhere where you don't do it all the time. Or it may be across some horrible street that you, can't, that you don't want to be doing. Uh, how can that be addressed? Sorry, is that a question? How can yeah. that be addressed? Sorry? Yes, it was a question because okay. you had said I'm, that you... I'm having a terrible time um, making out. It's not a volume issue, but it's a clarity issue of the voices coming through the equipment oh. to me. I can, oh. I can understand Alice fairly well. Okay, do I, if so I talk may, in... If it was a question, maybe you could repeat or paraphrase. Okay. What she was asking um, is, Marilyn, in Dallas, their bus stops are not always at a very safe place for them to get on and off. So, therefore, would it not be under that general ruling now and modification of a policy, it would be a reasonable policy if, for the bus to actually pick a different spot to pick those folks off if it's not a safe place? If um, I think I heard what you were saying. If the question is, is it um, 
required as a reasonable modification of policy if there's an accessibility problem at the bus stop to have the bus pick the person up, you know, at a, at a very nearby place that's not exactly at the bus stop. Is that right? Something like that? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's the kind of example that DOT has been giving about what they mean by reasonable modification of policy, that very thing. You hear it most often applied to wheelchair access, but there's no reason why it wouldn't apply to access for people with, who are blind or, vis or have vision impairments just as much. So yes, and if they say they don't have to pick you up over there, you know, send them to, uh, let me give, the Appendix E, the, the new part of the DOT regulation that added this requirement for a reasonable modification of policies, practices, and procedures added an appendix to the DOT ADA regulation entirely about this, and it pretty much does nothing but give examples of modification, of example like requests for modification of policy and which ones would be, be considered required and which ones wouldn't and which ones may not under particular conditions or whatever. And that's Appendix E. I'm now furiously flipping to make sure I have that right. But yeah, that is Appendix E to Part 37. And tell them to go read it um, if they, or, or again, file a complaint. Because that's become Reasonable Modification 101. To, to pick people up. You can't ask for a brand new bus stop three blocks away, but I think as you were saying, you know, pr you know, quite close, but just not quite right at the bus stop, then yes. You know, the bus has to be able to get to you, but hopefully you and the bus driver can work out a place that they can safely pull up and you can actually board. Or find, that's another issue, finding the bus stop. And now, um, I'm not saying that paratransit is a substitute for a fixed route surface, if, uh, particularly if you, you know, want to use the fixed route, um, which the ADA prefer, prefers you use anyway. Um, but inaccessible bus stops, in Dredef's view, are also an eligibility factor, render eligibility for ADA paratransit, but I don't think that that's not your question. Your question is you want to get on the bus. So, should I move on to the fixed route service chapter? Yes. Okay. Um, let's see what is interesting in here. Yes. Let's talk a minute about priority seating. When an individual with a disability enters a vehicle and because of the disability, the individual needs to sit in a seat, um, uh, you know, in the priority seating area, the transit agency shall ask people to move in order to allow the individual with a disability to occupy the seat. Um, they have to ask people, except other individuals with disabilities or elderly persons, sitting in a location designated as priority seating for elderly and handicapped persons or another seat as necessary. So the regulation obliges drivers in some cases to ask
people um, oh sorry well the regulation does I might as well say put this in the regulation obligates drivers in some cases to ask an ambulatory individual even an individual ambulatory individual with a disability or a senior to move from a seat that is a wheelchair securement area if there is other seating on the bus and if a wheelchair user needs to use that space. Um, the agencies are, are allowed to establish mandatory move policies requiring, agents, requiring riders to vacate priority seating um, and to post signs that it's required. The regulation under the ADA only goes far as requiring the driver to request it. Um, also, there's a section, a subsection here called adequate vehicle boarding and disembarking time. FTA encourages transit agencies to instruct personnel to pay attention to riders who need extra time. Um, this includes riders who use wheelchairs as well as others with ambulatory or sensory disabilities who may need extra time to board or disembark. On rail vehicles, in situations where trained personnel do not have visual contact with riders inside cars, um, FTA, that's, well, FTA encourages transit agencies to establish wait time standards or other procedures for personnel to follow that will give riders sufficient time to get to a seat or to situate their mobility device, I'm going to add, or their animal, before being seated. Um, FTA also encourages agencies to train employees to provide sufficient time at station stops to permit riders with disabilities to leave a seat or securement area and completely clear vehicle doorways. Um, more stuff about lifts and ramps. Oh, there's another section about boarding order. And if there's a lot of people board, wanting to board a vehicle, um, policies that give lower boarding priority to riders who use mobility aids because they would occupy more space on the vehicle or for any other reason would also be discriminatory. So they can't have a policy that sort of disabled people always board last. Now they're not required to have a policy that disabled people always board first, but they're not allowed to have a policy that you always board, we always board last. Um, here's a section on stop announcements, um, which I want to go into in some detail. The, F, the ADA requires um, fixed route transit services we're talking generally here about the bus and the trains, the three kinds of rail I mentioned earlier, which every, every kind of passenger rail other than Amtrak, um, to announce stops at major intersections, at major destination points, um, at sufficient intervals to help passengers orient themselves to their locations, and, of course, any stop requested by a rider must be announced. And FTA recommends that transit agencies make announcements, ensure announcements are made consistently and worded in a way that's familiar to riders. 
so, um, for example, for stops served by multiple routes, an optional good practice that FTA mentions is the convention, um, adopting the convention of announcing cross streets. So if you're traveling on Broadway and you're intersecting Market Street, you might just say Market Street. If you're turning onto Market Street from Broadway, the transit agency can establish a convention, Market Street at Broadway. And FTA recommends that they establish a convention for how they're going to announce stops and then do it the same way every time. Another recommendation is using familiar names, for example, Target, rather than more general names that aren't as familiar, like Smith Street Mall. Um, Transit agencies must ensure their personnel use the public address system. If the public address system or the automated announcement system is inoperable, fulfilling the stop announcement requirements means drivers or rail personnel must verbally announce the stops. Um, we see a lot of problems with automated announcement systems that have become more and more common, um, that when they go out, that's when we see ADA violations of stop announcements because drivers don't announce stops, don't use the public address system, aren't loud enough, aren't thorough enough, or what have you. There is also a section on route identification. Um, when vehicles or other conveyances for more than one route serve the same stop, the transit agencies shall provide a means by which an individual with a visual impairment or other disability can identify the proper vehicle to enter or be identified to the vehicle operator as a person seeking to ride on a particular route. Um, the methods for this have changed since the ADA first began, um, now more than, you know, we're going on 26 years ago. Um, but. They no longer include, you know, you know, wearing something or, you know, having a sign or anything like that. The, the required methods are all things the transit agency has to do. Uh, FTA encourages transit agencies to ensure operators are instructed to announce routes if waiting passengers do not readily appear to have a visual impairment because not all disabilities are apparent. FTA also encourages agencies to adopt policies requiring that operators always stop at bus stops with waiting passengers, and not only when an individual at the stop waves or otherwise signals the operator to stop. Okay. Any... Actually, let me see. Yes. Uh, I, was, I was then going to move into paratransit. So really, any other questions about fixed route service? Okay.
So do I understand there is a requirement for announcing stops when you're on a vehicle, but there is no requirement for identifying bus stops or any other stops in an accessible manner? Was, uh, I did not. Okay. okay. I understand that there is a rule for when you're on a vehicle, they must make announcements about stops. But do I understand correctly that there is no rule saying that stops must be identifiable or accessible? from, you know, when you're not on the vehicle. It's so hard to find bus stops so often when there isn't a bench that I don't understand why there isn't any rule about that. No, you know, I'm why not. I wonder if... How do you find, is, is the law require agencies to do something so that people can find the bus stop? Ah, good question. Um, bus identify bus stop detectability. I don't, there, you know, there is not any, well, that's a good question. Um, bus stop detectability would be under transportation facilities. And here's a section on bus stops. Let me, let me check. Bus stop detectability is really important, so I hope they require something because so far it's only been, this is a really huge document, Any, I'm sorry to say that I don't think there's anything about bus stop detectability in this document. We have talked about that issue in trainings for a long time and find it very important, but they do not appear to have made an interpretation about it. Um, I could talk for a while about ways to make bus stops detectable and the importance of doing it, and we've included that in our trainings. I do not see it in this, in this circular, however. I think that if, if a person wanted chair transit eligibility because they couldn't use the fixed route system because the bus stops are not detectable and complained on that basis to FTA, you might, you might get paratransit eligibility from it. Now, you may get it already just by applying for it. But if you don't get it, and this is your reason, um, FTA is surely aware of this issue. And it would be interesting to see what they would say they may be with us on that. Let's move on to paratransit. Okay. This is uh, in Chapter 8 
Um, of course, ADA complementary paratransit being a critical safety net for people with disabilities who cannot use the fixed route service. The first chapter here on paratransit is on its operations, and then there's a chapter on eligibility. So I'll just go in the area that uh, FTA goes in. <coughs> there, the ADA requires, has been interpreted to require what's called origin to destination service. The original regulation allowed transit agencies to provide either door-to-door -door service or curb-to-curb -curb service, um, meaning that a person, the transit agency could require you to come to the curb and wait there and be picked up there. Um, but a 2005 DOT guidance on origin to destination service required transit agencies to provide door-to-door -door service if a person needs it due to their disability. Um, agencies, and I'm reading here from the circular, agencies must provide assistance to ensure the service actually gets riders from their point of origin to their destination point. To meet this origin to destination requirement, agencies will need to provide service to some individuals or at some locations in a way that goes beyond curb-to-curb -curb service. Assistance must be provided even if riders do not request it in advance. Riders may not know ahead of time what barriers exist at drop-off points. Um, agencies may set a policy in which drivers must be able to maintain effective continuing control of the vehicle. This sometimes includes maintaining visual contact with the vehicle or not going more than a certain distance, for example, X number of feet, like 100 feet or 150 feet from the vehicle. Um, so, for example, at pickup and drop-off locations with multiple entrances, a paratransit rider's request to be picked up at home but not at the front door of the home should be granted as long as the requested pickup location does not pose a direct threat. Similarly, in the case of frequently visited public places with multiple entrances, such as shopping malls, employment centers, schools, hospitals, and airports, the paratransit operator should pick up and drop off the passenger at the entrance requested by the passenger rather than meet them in a location that has been predetermined by the transportation agency, again assuming that doing so does not involve a direct threat. So if you want to be picked up at the side door of the uh, you know, primary care medical building of your medical center, um, because that's more accessible to you as opposed to an entrance that for whatever reason is not accessible to you, you should be able to specify that location and get picked up there. Um, navigating in and around obstacles. Uh, a paratransit passenger's request for a driver to help him or her navigate around an incline um, or traversing a difficult sidewalk where tree roots have made the sidewalk impassable um, or around snow drifts or construction areas um, are examples of door-to-door -door service that's required. Um, there was one that we were particularly interested in that they label as unattended passengers, where passengers request for assistance means that the driver will need to leave passengers aboard a vehicle unattended. So 
So in other words, someone asks for assistance, it means the driver has to help them to the door, and they're leaving you unattended, meaning no one's there in the vehicle that's from the transit agency. Some transit agencies have said we can't leave passengers unattended, so we can't give one passenger door-to-door service if we'd be leaving another passenger on the vehicle unattended. So the, the circular says transit agencies should generally grant the request of the passenger that needed the door-to-door service as long as accommodating the request would not leave the vehicle unattended or out of visual observation for a lengthy period of time, both of which could involve direct threats to health or safety of the unattended passengers. It is important to keep in mind that just as a driver is not required to act as a personal care attendant for a passenger making a request for assistance, so a driver is not intended to act as a personal care attendant for other passengers in the vehicle, such that he or she must remain in their physical presence at all times. So there, transit agencies. I thought that was great. So nobody um, needs the extra deference that uh, really a lot of us don't need. Um, Okay, I was going to go to the section on next day service. if a tra- now, on paratransit, it would just—it would probably be impossible in the time we have to really cover all of what they say because it's just voluminous. But what we had wanted to do is at least provide things that were new to us and that we hadn't seen before. So I'll—I'll I'll give you a few examples of that. Uh, under a category called next, in a section called trip reservations and response time, subcategory next day service. If an agency operates service past midnight or operates service 24 hours a day, and this happens in, you know, real big cities, this also means allowing callers to call during normal business hours the day before the trip to request a trip at any time the next day, including a trip that would begin just after midnight. So you can call it five minutes till five on a Tuesday to get a trip at midnight 05 on Wednesday. Um, if an agency allows reservations seven days before a desired trip and later decides it wants to change the advanced reservation policy, for example, scaling back the number of days to three, it must follow the specific public public participation requirements that are outlined in the DOT ADA regulation. Um, The transit agency may negotiate pickup times with the individual, but as most of us probably know, it may not require an ADA paratransit eligible person to schedule the trip to begin more than an hour before or after the person's desired departure time. Um, this has been called a negotiation window. This, and the circular says that this negotiation window is subject to the rider's practical needs. A true negotiation considers the rider's time constraints. For example, a rider may end his or her workday at 4 p.m. and request a 4 p.m. pickup. Um, while the DOT ADA regulation 
in theory, permits the agency to offer a pickup an hour before that time, doing so is not appropriate because the rider would still be working. In such instances, offering a pickup time any time between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. would be appropriate and consistent with the negotiation requirement. Um, there's also pickup windows, and the section on pickup windows. FTA permits transit agencies to establish a reasonable quote-unquote window around the negotiated pickup time during which the vehicle may arrive and still be regarded as on time. Most agencies use pickup windows which are typically 20 to 30 minutes in length and are also known as on-time windows. FTA considers pickup windows longer than 30 minutes to be unacceptable because they require riders to wait an unreasonably long time. So no pickup windows longer than 30 minutes. If a transit agency wants to change your pickup time, they have to reach you and get your agreement on it. Um, scheduling practices that routinely fail to protect the pickup window indicate a capacity constraint on the part of the transit agency, which is a violation of the ADA, which is prohibited. Um, of course, trip with appointment times, which is something we did not see in the original regulation, we didn't get in the original regulation. Um, trips with appointment times, for example, medical appointments, work events, uh, and concerts, where an arriving at a specific time is especially important. Um, where the desired departure time may be less important to you than just any departure time that will get you uh, where you're going on time. Um, a discussion of the rider's time needed to arrive on time for an appointment, therefore, will sometimes be, be part of the negotiation between the transit agency and the rider during the trip scheduling process. An agency's negotiation and scheduling process must account for the fact that for some riders taking some trips, arrival time is more important than departure time and allow those riders to request either a desired pickup time or a desired drop-off time. This means scheduling the trips so that riders will arrive at or before their requested time. The next uh, subsection here is untimely service prohibited operational practices. And I need to ask for a little water break for a moment. Thank you for your patience on that. Pickup windows and timely service. Many transit agencies use pickup windows. FTA considers pickups on time as long as drivers arrive at pickup locations within this established 30-minute pickup window. It is important that policies require drivers to wait until the start of the pickup window 
to begin what is often a policy of a transit agency to have a five-minute countdown and to wait the full five minutes um, fully elapsed before departing without the rider. Um, FTA also encourages transit agencies to set standards for on-time performance, and we can talk about that if you're interested in it. Um, there's also a section on trip denials and missed trips. Um, but the ADA basically requires that the transit agency plan and plan service, allocate resources, and manage operations in order to meet 100% of paratransit demand. So if a rider requests a next day trip and the transit agency can only offer a trip that's outside of the one hour negotiating window, this is a denial, even if the rider accepts the offer. And an undue number of these denials is a violation of the ADA. Also, if a rider requests a round trip, which usually we will, uh, and the agency can only provide one leg of the trip, um, if the rider does not take the one-way trip offered, both portions are considered denials. FTA expects transit agents, uh, this is really about monitoring. Um, missed trips, Transit agencies are required to avoid missed trips, which are trips that simply don't take place, and they have to monitor those. Trips of excessive lengths, um, DOT has said for quite some time now that for a trip to be overly long, in other words, to be a violation of the ADA because the trip is so long, what that means is not that it's longer than driving from your origin to your destination, but that the trip is significantly longer than the fixed route would take, including the time it would take to wait at the stopper station at your origin, or, excuse me, to get to your stopper station, wait at the stopper station, the in-vehicle time for all segments, including transfer times, and then the walking time from the final stopper station to the address you're going to. All of that has to count towards what the fixed route would take, and they judge if a paratransit ride is too long based on what the fixed route would take, including all of those things, including things that don't take place on the vehicle, like going to and from the bus stop. Um, Operational problems that are, attributable, that are attributable to causes beyond the control of the transit agency are not a basis for determining that a pattern of excessive trip lengths exists. However, paratransit operations are supposed to account for recurring factors such as known peak period traffic jams and then build that into their estimates of time. So uh, the transit agency has to in a sense, think ahead. Um, then there's a section called untimely drop-offs. FTA considers a pattern or practice of untimely drop-offs for trips with stated appointment times as a capacity constraint. Um, agencies are required to drop off riders no more than 30 minutes before an appointment and no later than the appointment time itself. 
Some transit agencies schedule drop-offs no later than five minutes before appointment times to allow the rider to actually get in to the movie or the doctor's appointment or whatever it is. Um, another section here, and something very important that evolved as the ADA came more into full fruition, is poor telephone performance, um, which is a capacity constraint. So, um, for example, hold times, unduly long hold times, are a pattern of them is a violation of the ADA. Similarly, not just calling to arrange a ride, but promptly replying, excuse me, promptly responding to calls about late pickups, commonly known as where's my ride calls, are very important, particularly because riders may not be in a suitable location to remain on hold. <coughs> um, it's very important that all of this telephone, the telephone operations be together in a variety of ways that we could talk about. And transit agencies are required to establish standards. Uh, FTA says that a good standard um, is that a minimum percentage of calls with hold time shorter than uh, a specific threshold like two minutes and, uh, and another percentage with a threshold, you know, no longer than five minutes. Um, they, transit agencies are not encouraged to average, and a lot of this comes into monitoring. Okay. Anything else on uh, paratransit, uh, anything other than eligibility on paratransit? Now is a good time to ask questions about that. We, we do have one question before you get into eligibility, and we'll, we'll take that one, and then we need you to move, we'll have to go I am a I'm a paratransit user um, in Columbus, Ohio, and oftentimes what I run into is that I have to work at 8.30 and they pick me up at 6.30. Is this ethical or legal? I did not um, clearly hear the times you said. Her, her question was, she actually, in the town where she's at, her uh, work hour is 8.30 and they insist she be picked up at 6.30. And she's questioning if that then is legal because that's two hours obviously before she has to be to work. Um, can we do what we did a while ago where somebody was, was like Chris, you had called my cell phone yeah. and I could keep that I would just like to hear these questions a little more clearly because I'm just not in a good position to help you with responses if I don't. Larry, you're right there by the phone. Can you repeat it? I can do that. Uh, Thank you, sir. Should I call you, Chris? No, let's let's the question again. Repeat it. What's the question again? She wants to know. Uh, uh, her, her work hour, she has to be at work at 8. 8 I'm sorry, 8.30, and the paratransit tells her she has to be picked up at 6.30. Okay, uh, the question is, this person, she needs to be at work at 8.30 in the morning, and the transportation is insisting that she be picked up at 6.30. Oh, I see. Yep. So does that fall under the, the previews of that would not really be ethical under the... the does that fall under what? Would that be in violation of the rule? 
of yeah. Um, let me let me address. That's a good question. That's a very good question because we all have seen these um, really long times before. You know, um, before you want to get somewhere that they require you to be picked up. Because ADA Paratransit is a shared ride service, they are allowed to set that time. But if there is an undue pattern of these excessively long rides, you know, you can file a complaint, but you have to ask, you have to, well, what FTA will take into account when deciding is how long did it take to get there on the fixed route service? Paratransit is allowed to take that long, and that includes time to get to the bus stop or train station, wait for the bus or train, take the bus or train, including transfers, and then go from the station or stop to your final destination. So if all that added together, if the paratransit time is considerably longer, and we're talking about specifically the ride time, a pattern of that is an ADA violation. So, you know, in some large geographic areas or at busy times or with, you know, multiple riders on the vehicle, you can have pretty long rides that aren't necessarily violations of the ADA. No. Let's move on to eligibility, and then we'll take questions at the end. Um, okay. We've been pretty good at, at moving through. I mean, if somebody else has an ADA operations question, paratransit operations, I, I'm certainly happy to take it. So we should move on then? Doesn't yeah. sound yes. like I don't hear anyone. We'll get it at the end. If you okay, mind, very good. Ahead. So our ADA paratransit eligibility. Um, individual, uh, there are three eligibility categories in the ADA. One is inability to navigate the system independently. That applies particularly to, sorry? Go ahead, Marilyn. Okay. Um, that applies particularly to people with um, develop, developmental, uh, you know, developmental or intellectual disabilities, but also vision disabilities um, who cannot navigate the overall system, or who have received travel training to make specific trips, but are unable to use fixed route for trips for which you have not received travel training. Um, it also affects people with psychiatric and other disabilities. Um, here's, um, well, let's actually, let me move on to category two, which is lack of accessible vehicles, stations, or bus stops. Um, and here I have written into my circular, should extend to a lack of stop announcements, but um, they did not write that it does. Uh, oh, here's a section on bus stop accessibility. Sorry, it's under paratransit eligibility. Category two also applies to a stop at which individuals cannot use bus lifts or ramps because the stop itself is inaccessible. But it doesn't say detectability. I'm really sorry to read. 
And then category three, inability to reach a boarding point or final destination. So you can't get to where you would have to get on the bus or train or from the disembarking point to the final destination. Um, and this includes things like long distances, um, snowy and icy conditions, extremes in temperature, um, and wayfinding issues. So individuals with intellectual, cognitive, vision, or psychiatric disabilities who may not be able to find their way along unfamiliar routes. That is a triggering mechanism for ADA paratransit eligibility. Eligibility is required to address your current or an applicant's current functional ability. Um, transit agencies cannot require people to participate in travel training, for example. If you want to participate in it, that's fine, but they cannot require that you do. Um, determinations of ADA paratransit eligibility must consider each applicant's ability to travel to any origin and destination in their service area under any or all conditions. So it would be inappropriate to deny eligibility because a bus stop was located only two blocks from someone's home because that incorrectly assumes the person will only be traveling to or from uh, their home and does not consider travel distances at all of the destinations that a person might visit at the other end of the trip, um, which is utterly obvious, but these are things transit agencies have actually done. Um, there is an important section called conditional eligibility. Um, ADA paratransit does, all, does not have to be an all-or-nothing decision. Conditional eligibility applies to people who are able to travel independently using fixed-route service under some circumstances. Uh, factors typically include the maximum distance that people are able to walk, environmental conditions that affect um, provision of fixed route service, um, et cetera. And a transit agency that's doing conditional eligibility properly um, will identify the specific conditions under which an applicant is eligible um, to ride ADA paratransit and communicating what those conditions are exactly to the rider so they'll know exactly what trips they're eligible for and what trips they're not eligible for. Conditions of eligibility reflect functional abilities, not trip purposes. So it's not uh, as if, you know, dialysis trips only, because that's a destination. But it could be something about, you know, uh, eligibility to riders who experience extreme fatigue due to end-stage renal failure and associated treatments. The eligibility determination process has a lot of requirements. Um, for example, for determining eligibility, transit agencies are allowed to use three basic sources of information, information provided by applicants, 
information provided by qualified professionals familiar with applicants, such as a doctor, uh, and assessments of functional abilities. Transit agencies can assess your functional abilities. Um, there is, uh, the circular refers to a much longer document uh, published by Easter Seals Project, excuse me, Project Action called Determining ADA Paratransit Eligibility, an approach, guidance, and training materials. Actually, the update says an approach, recommendations, and training materials. So information provided by professionals is really important, um, and transit agencies must accept professional verification from a wide array of professionals. Not just a doctor, for example, but they must accept O&M specialists, therapists, clinical social workers, job coaches, registered nurses, among others. Um, they must avoid unreasonable burdens and user fees. The process may not impose unreasonable administrative burdens on applicants. For example, that you would be required to go for an interview one day and then go to another day for a functional assessment. FTA has said that, is, you're, you know, you're, no one's required to do, no one can be required to do that under the ADA. Um, they're required to make timely determinations, theoretically within 21 days. There have been some kind of elaborate uh, detailing around what that 21 days means, so ask me if you want me to go into it further. They are allowed to require recertification periodically. Um, it is recommended that people whose disabilities are permanent not have to go through recertification, but they cannot require that transit agencies do not require recertification under the ADA. Um, you may appeal a denial of eligibility um, and be heard in person at a hearing. Transit agencies are obligated to accept appeal requests received within 60 days of the initial determination. So if you are denied eligibility or if you work at an agency and one of your clients is denied eligibility, they have to appeal that decision within 60 days. Now this has often been a problem because people don't know about appeals or they feel like they don't want to go through it and then they get encouraged to and by that time that happens, the 60 days have elapsed. But all is not lost because a person can reapply for eligibility for ADA paratransit at any time. You can reapply the day after you are denied if you want to. It means you have to go through the whole thing again, which is, you know, whatever. It's a bureaucratic, you know, pain. But if you are again, you might be deemed eligible. But if you're again denied, by that point you know about your appeal rights and you know to appeal the rejection or the denial within 60 days. So the 60 days does not have to um, preclude an appeal because people can reapply and go through the eligibility determination process and if denied then appeal that decision. And often initial decisions to deny paratransit eligibility 
are reversed on appeal. So we really encourage people to use this right to appeal a denial of eligibility. There's a lot more about appeals. Um, they're supposed to be decided by people who are objective, who are not the staff that originally determined you know, to deny eligibility. They're supposed to have a high level of knowledge about the functional levels of individuals with disabilities similar to applicants, and there's other things that I could say about appeals processes. Um, I want to say there's something about service for visitors to a city, and I can talk about that as well. I wanted particularly to get to the section on no-shows and late cancellations, shall I? Go ahead. That seems important to Dreddiff anyway. I'm going to stick something here. And why? Oh, page 927. Okay, no-show suspensions. Um, transit agencies are allowed to establish an administrative process to suspend somebody's eligibility for a reasonable, somebody's eligibility to ADA paratransit for a reasonable period of time um, if they establish a pattern or practice of missing scheduled trips or no-shows. However, only actions within the control of the rider may count as part of the pattern or practice. So there's all kinds of things, you know, illness or um, things that were actually mistakes by the transit agency, a sudden family emergency, a certain sudden turn for the worse, and somebody with a, ver somebody with a variable condition like muscular dystrophy. Uh, things that are not under control of the passenger are not allowed to be the basis for a decision to suspend a rider's eligibility. Um, some transit agencies have established uh, another sort of punitive category, which is late cancellations. And after an extensive, you know, sort of years of experience and figuring all this out, um, FTA has, has a, uh, established the interpretation that a cancellation is not considered late until it's an hour or two before the pickup time your negotiated pickup time. So if you cancel a trip that's set for 3 p.m., if you cancel that at 10 in the morning, the transit agency cannot call that a late cancellation five hours in advance. That can't be deemed a late cancellation, and they can't give you like a point that adds up to maybe a suspension of eligibility if you do it a bunch of times. So that's not okay. And there's a lot of language here about how to establish that there's really a reasonable pattern to suspend somebody's eligibility based on a pattern of no-shows. We can talk about that if you, if you want to. Um, if you are suspended, um, you are to be notified and in writing. Now, in writing means including alternate formats that are accessible to the person um, based on um, their disability. Um, it has to cite specifically the basis for the proposed suspension. Um, FTA recommends that transit agencies notify riders uh, of no-shows, and not just when they've established enough to suspend you, but any time they happen. 
but that is not required. They are required to notify riders that you have the right to appeal a proposed suspension. And if you do appeal, the suspension is stayed, meaning the suspension doesn't take effect pending the outcome of a, an appeal. So if you're an eligible paratransit rider and you are threatened with a no-show suspension, if you appeal, you still get rides until your appeal is heard and decided. Um, transit agencies are supposed to make suspensions reasonable in time. FTA considers a week for the first offense a reasonable duration. Subsequent offenses may justify a longer suspension. A second violation might result in a suspension for a few days longer than the first, and so forth. But FTA considers suspensions longer than 30 days to be excessive under the ADA. So these transit agencies saying you're suspended forever or you're suspended for six months or something like that, FTA is not happy with. Um, and uh, no-show suspensions are not allowed to be, it looks like, more than a month. Um, and there's, as I mentioned earlier, a prohibition against fines for instead of a suspension. Now, in some places, transit agencies will let you pay a fine in lieu of a suspension of your eligibility. And if you agree to do that, it's optional, then it's okay. FTA is not going to say it's a violation of the ADA. And they give a number of recommendations for minimizing no-shows. Um, and there's a lot we could say about no-shows, but we have about, oh, I don't know, roughly 10 more minutes. And so now is a really good time for questions about anything we've talked about, but especially paratransit eligibility. Okay, Paul, let me go back to you. Did she answer your questions or do you? Okay, give Paul, Larry, if you would, give Paul the mic first. Oh, well, so I can hear it. <laughs> I'm supposed to have heard something? I'm, I'm waiting for Paul. Okay, here's the question, uh, the scenario we have in our agency. Uh, when a person calls up, our agent, their reservation clerk will say, You're, you are eligible for conditional use, um, and then they might list all your conditions and you have to give one, otherwise they'll deny a ride. Is that the way it's supposed to work? Yeah, you have to declare a condition. You have to tell them which condition applies. That, that is a mi yeah, no, 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 no. That is a misunderstanding of, 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 what, of, of what the field refers to as con conditional eligibility. No. They, you mean like, dis in other words, dis they mean disabling conditions? Yeah. Yeah, what I mean, what I mean is... Um, Okay, if, if they're not supposed to list the, you know, they can either, you can either declare the condition or they can list the conditions to you, but if you don't declare a condition, um, then they say you can't give it, they'll deny your ride. So how should it really work? That's the, that's the real I, question. I'm still not, are you, do you mean they're saying something like, 
we'll give you paratransit if you use a wheelchair and you're deaf, but not if you're blind or something like that. Yeah, they say you are eligible for conditional use. You, you've been you've been, well, you've been eligible for conditional use. Um, these are the conditions. Which condition you want to use? Okay. All right. Say, for example, my well, my wife uses a complex intersection. For example, she'll say, uh, they'll say, um, which condition applies, and she'll say complex intersection. Okay, or whatever. Right. But does she have to declare a condition, or well, how does the the process really, when it's working properly, you're supposed to? Oh, work? I see. I see. I see. Um. Well, I I think it's okay if let me think for a second. Conditional eligibility. I mean, the way that the process ideally works is that the transit agency knows that if you request a paratransit ride from an explicit point A to point B, they know that there are conditions along that route that render you unable to negotiate that trip, such as a complex intersection. Um, you, the rider cannot be required to know because they've never been there, maybe. Maybe you have a doctor in a new part of the city. By new, I mean new to the rider. So you don't know that if you have to go through a parking lot with no discernible tactile um, cues that are picked upable with a cane. So no, no, you don't have to know, you know, the A through Z of the route that you can't do. That, that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's their problem. Now, if you say... If you request uh, paratransit because, let me use a different disability. If you request paratransit because it's supposed to be over 100 degrees tomorrow, you know, starting at 9.30 in the morning and lasting until, you know, uh, you know nine, 9 at night, um, and you are someone who, due to your... Uh, muscular dystrophy uh, um, or mul uh, multiple sclerosis, you um, cannot tolerate that kind of weather condition. So then you're asking because you know in advance about what's expected in terms of the weather. That's okay. But, you know, so they have to, it depends on what the condition is. You don't have to, I don't think it's reasonable to expect a person who is blind or has a visual impairment to know that they have to negotiate uh, an intersection with three lanes of traffic in either direction where there's no accessible pedestrian signal. Um, Marilyn, yeah. Let's, let's put it this way. Let's say that I am a blind individual and because I know my city and my area, I know there's this complicated intersection, so that's why I'm asking for paratransit. But they may deny me and say, no, that's not good reason. So they may deny you if they if they what? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm requesting to be eligible for paratransit when I go, you know, say my doctor's appointment within this complicated intersection. Yeah. And they denied me and they said that's not good enough. Yeah, well, that sounds like a violation of the ADA to me because that's the kind of condition that renders you eligible for paratransit. And so if you know that condition exists and you, well, it, it, this, it depends on if you're doing your initial eligibility, which is first, and then you are deemed, let's say you're deemed conditionally eligible. And so you're trying to, you need to go a certain place, and you call for the ride, and they refuse the ride. Then the, the ride can be refused if it does not trigger the conditions that are your conditions for conditional eligibility. But, and if you have a dispute over that, in other words, they say um, your conditions are not met, you can't ride paratransit, you may have to complain to FTA. Now, you can always complain to the transit agency first. Transit agencies are required to have complaint mechanisms, too. And sometimes they operate, you know, soundly and help people in situations like this, and other times they don't. So you're not required to make a local complaint, but your FTA likes when you do, but you're not required to. You can also complain right to FTA. But... Um, if you're, if the trip includes one of the conditions that renders you eligible for paratransit, and you know the condition is really there, and you tell them it's there, they don't take you. They're, I think, they're violating your ADA rights under for ADA paratransit. All right, thank. We're we're at. Please, please, sorry, Bob. Um, but what I, I, first of all, I want to thank Marilyn for joining us today and talking to us. Uh, if we could give her a round of applause. Okay. It was my pleasure to be with you. Um, hope to see you soon, those of you who might know. Bye bye. Um, I do have the Earl that Marilyn talked about where to file complaints. It's very long. What I, we will do, what I promise you I will do is put it out on the leadership. Uh, well, I won't because I'm not on, well, not on leadership, but on the a, um, ACBL list, I'll get Larry to put it out there. We'll put it out on, for those of you who are on the transportation list that's been very quiet lately, we'll put it there. You can always email me and and I can email it to you. My email is alice, A-L-I-C-E, dot richart, R-I-T, C, two H's, A-R-T, at comcast.net, and I'll get you that, Earl. The other thing which came out today, which will be a good point, like I said, we'll look at that with transportation, is the fact that it doesn't seem to mention in the criteria or the law about what a blind person is supposed to do and what the law or what the regs should do. But I want to check with our person on transportation who works in the transit industry and may know, he may know actually if there are 
in policy about what happens if the bus stops not where a blind person can get at it what's the policy and if we find there really is none in the criteria at this point then that's something we may need to bring forward to them so we'll look at that so i'm yes who is that um let me just finish and it, are your people here Okay, Becky, are you here? She is here. Let um, let me, Judy, um, <clears throat> just say that um, I lost my train. Oh, I know what it was. Your tickets, y'all. That was what I needed to say. And then Judy will take your comment. And Becky, if you'll work your way up here, then we'll get started with the second portion. Let me, uh, okay. Let me yeah, that, that's why. Leave your tickets on the table. That way, I'll have somebody cited here with me in a little bit, and I'll come around and collect them. Oh, okay. Unless you haven't. Unless you haven't. If you have not, leave it on the table, and we'll get it. And at this point, I'm going to turn over the um, mic to Chris Bell. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm the chair of the Environmental Access Committee, and I think we need a five-minute break. So, I... At 3.35, according to my Apple iPhone, I, we will resume whether or not anyone's here. Hey, everybody. I'm Becky Davidson. I'm a member of the Environmental Access Committee, and we are hosting a panel discussion about accessible pedestrian signals. What is that for? Okay. So I just wanted to... We have a little bit smaller panel than we had originally planned, but it's a strong panel nonetheless. So to my far left is Charlie Crawford, who's going to talk about accessible pedestrian signal um, progress in the state of Maryland. And then Chris Bell, who's the chair of the Environmental Access Committee. And Lori Scharf from Long Island, New York, who's going to talk about some of what's going on on Long Island. And I will also be sharing some information about other parts of New York and some progress that we are actually making slowly, but you know how that goes. So at this point, um, so at this point, I'm going to turn the, the floor over to Charlie Crawford, who has another commitment in a little while. So we're, he gets to go first. Charlie? Thank you. Okay. Yep. Good morning. I mean, afternoon, everybody. <laughs> Tell you where I'm coming from. Anyway, so uh, um, thanks for the uh, opportunity to talk about what we think is some pretty good progress in Maryland and uh, to some extent can be replicated around the country, we believe. And uh, some of it is wonderful advocacy and good strategy. A lot of it's dumb luck. Uh, but the progress in Maryland relates back to back a few years back when uh, Al Petrolongo was the uh, president of the American Council of the Blind of Maryland, he, uh, he, he was concerned about the fact that they, he wasn't, wasn't able to, to get um, pedestrian signals that are you know, accessible uh, in certain areas of the state. And so uh, we had suggested, well, you know what, you know, file a complaint with the, uh, with the government agency responsible for funding the state of Maryland's highway um, projects. So he did. And lo and behold, a couple of months later, a letter comes in the mail to Al Petrolongo saying, yep, a jurisdiction 
has a responsibility as an entity covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act to make its facilities accessible to people, including pedestrian signals. And so if they improve a intersection or make any change to an intersection, then they have to make sure that that intersection is accessible to all people who use it, including pedestrians. That was kind of, well, to us, it was just common sense. But it was big news to the highway department because they never believed it before. But now they had to believe it because at least the federal government was saying it. And fortunately, they had the, um, the perseverance of good government to follow the instructions of the federal government. And so what they did was they incorporated in the planning process the cabling and the um, positioning of accessible pedestrian signals with using the Polara accessible signal. And in four years, we've gone from a relatively few to 2,000 APSs in Maryland. That's quite a, quite a good job. We still got a ways to go because we've got the counties and the localities and all that to, to work with when it's not a state highway. Then they don't, they don't necessarily get the message as well as the state did. But the point is that it can be done. And it can be done not from some great sense of advocacy and hours and hours of you know strategic meetings and all that, but more so because somebody really wanted it to happen, needed it to happen, it's the right thing to do, and we did it. And if you have any questions, I'll take them. Otherwise, I'll let smarter people than me talk. Is that letter replicable? Yes. No. Yes, it is. Oh, another jurisdiction. Well, that depends. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that. Yeah, okay. Charlie, what, what kind of signals do you have? Repeat the question, Charlie, after you hear what it. kind of signals we have? Yeah. Polera. I'm not getting that. Well, you come to the... P-O-L-E-R-A. P-O-L-A-R-A. I'm sorry, Polera. Yeah, P-O-L-A-R-A. Well, whatever. You know. English was not my major. Um, but no, Polera, and um, they are the ones that had the locator tone, the um, speech telling you what intersection it was, and, uh, and also when the, um, when the uh, light had turned in your favor to, to walk. So. I'm uh, Terry Gorman, and I've uh, traveled to England uh, uh, several times, and I've noticed a kind of pedestrian signal that's used widely there. It does not have speech, but it operates in a really, really effective way. It's a spinning disc that is mounted underneath a pole. Um, well, a, a how would you describe that, Sheldon? It's some sort of a 
This is Sheldon. Hi, this is Sheldon Atovsky. I'm with Terry. Um, what it is is a very standard uh, push button operation for anyone who wants to cross the street and they're waiting for the light. But underneath that little box, and it's uh, you know approximately abdomen height or chest height, is a little spinning mechanism that anyone can feel. You 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 put your hand on the disc and it's not spinning and as soon as it starts spinning then you know you can cross. It just seemed really good and especially in intersections where uh, sound would be difficult uh, and maybe unnecessary because it's a straight crossing. I just wondered why we haven't uh, seen these here in the U.S. and, and whether this might not be a good system uh, to use in some places here. In fact, I was telling uh, everyone else when to cross. I mean, everyone was saying, you know, when can we cross? And I'm like the first one saying it. Because you, as soon as the disc moves, that's when you can move. Thank you very much. Um, certainly, uh, other jurisdictions are going to have their own uh, approach to this, and um, far be it for me to uh, to um, um, comment comment neg negatively on that, uh, because I believe uh, the effort is worth it. But on the other hand, I think the reason why the um, intersections in this country have been um, designed in the way that they have been is because we met with the um, Association of Traffic Engineers uh, for a number of months in developing what's called the um, chapter in the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And that uh, manual has to take into account any number of circumstances. And in developing the chapter um, or the, res the respective requirements for the APS, uh, our goal was to ensure that a person could find the, the, uh, the um, audible pedestrian signal, and that was the locator tone, and it could be heard within 6 to 12 feet of it. The person could um, use a, a button to activate the signal, and once having done so, leaving that button depressed in for more than two seconds would announce the uh, intersection being crossed and the street being crossed. In a direction, yeah, that's important because not everybody is as savvy as other people in terms of their mobility skills, and or you could just be distracted by something. And finally, uh, with regards to the speaking, um, we do have um, situations where the signal will speak and then not speak when it's time to cross. It'll go, you know, rapid beep, 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 and that you know, lets the person know it's okay to cross, and that's acceptable only because in the, in the original circumstance, the person has already acquired where to cross, where they're crossing, and waiting for the information. So I hope that helps, and uh, I don't want to um, cast aspersions on England or any other place because there's, I know they're doing a good job there, but uh, it's important that we have that information that we believe is important for us to get. 
Go ahead. Okay, this, this is Paul from Austin. Um, we have a situation in Austin where there's accessible traffic signals on all four corners, but because people live in there's a downtown condominium area, they have asked the city not to turn the signals on in a, that particular corner. And, of course, our wimpy city government has agreed to do that. So um, the complaint that you filed, did you file with the Department of Transportation or, uh, or was this... Federal, okay. So what I need to do is file a complaint against the city of Austin with the um, Federal Highway Administration and get them to turn that back on. Okay. Appreciate it. I would encourage you to do it, too. Okay, I, I have a question. Um, I'm wondering what technology has been developed for dealing with the problem of the the seven lane, you know, mega street crossing from hell, you know, that you just can't hear the traffic. I've, we have some in our area and, and they're just, you know, you can't hear what uh, crossing, you know, what is the correct crossing. Thanks. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to leave not because of the question, but, <laughs> but Becky's gonna answer that and uh, and good luck. Thanks. No, I'm not gonna answer that. Um, I I would assume that you know that there there is is or needs to be some activity on that. But what I'd like us to do is um, hear from all of the panelists and then we'll reserve the rest of the questions for the end. This topic always brings up lots of really good questions. One thing to keep in mind is that technology is always evolving, and there are always going to be varying opinions on what works best where. Um, but there's there's plenty to address. So, Chris, did you want to talk? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask Chris to come up next to the podium, uh, and then after Chris, okay, Chris, can, can we give Chris the wireless? We need uh, you. Actually, Peggy, you can pull. Oh, yeah, I could probably pull this out now. I don't want to hurt anybody's eardrums. Here we go. Where are you? Thank you. Yeah. OK, my name is Chris Bell, and I chair the Environmental Access Committee. And I have spent uh, years trying to, uh, in the state of Minnesota, uh, get accessible pedestrian signals installed uh, the way uh, they should be installed and when they should be installed. First of all, our role as blind and visually impaired people is to advocate for such signals. And I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with taking an advocacy role with um, a state agency or a federal agency or whatever because they feel these issues are too technical. 
But our role, in my view, as advocates, is not to know the technical stuff, but is to tell our story in, the, in a way that it makes the issue, the policy issue, clear. I'll give you an, an example. Um, on a separate, on a non-transportation issue, in this state, we were considering voter ID. Um, and there was a, a feeling, a lot of people said, like, they can't afford to, to buy, to pay for a separate voter ID because it's like uh, $25 for a state ID, all right? So the legislative committee hemmed and hawed and said, well, we'll do it for a reduced price. We'll make, we'll make it for 10 bucks." And uh, so I, I testified, and I said, um, gee, I, I held up a card I have, which is a card to purchase a handgun in the state of Minnesota. Not, to, not conceal and carry, all right? Just to, to buy a handgun. You have to have a permit. So I hold this up, and I said, you know, this is my permit to buy a handgun, and what I had to do is go to the Roseville Police Department and fill out a whole lengthy form, and then they do a background check, uh, both within the state and, and federal, uh, and then they send me my card. And, and, you know, it doesn't cost anything. It's absolutely free. So I guess it depends what's, you know, what's a important, more important. Is it voting more important? Uh, which we want us to, to pay for, or uh, is it more important to get a gun which you'll subsidize, right? So that made the issue real for, for them because it highlighted what otherwise is a simple policy issue is why should we charge $10 for a voter ID? When we, uh, and so it's that kind of story that our job as blind people in meeting with these uh, state agencies and committees and whatnot is to understand an issue that affects us and explain it to people who aren't blind or aren't visually impaired, have no idea why the issue is important. Our job is to tell a story that gets them to understand it. And all the other technical stuff, not important. You know, they're all, there are a lot of pe technical people, but what we need is to move people and say, oh, that makes sense. Right? Now, more specifically, how do you do that with apps? So every state gets federal money from the Federal Highway Administration. This state gets about $600 million. And therefore, they have to, um, they have to comply with the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices which sets up standards for these apps, which we've discussed. In addition, the United States Access Board, for the last 20 plus years, has been working on something called the Public Rights of Way Guidelines. And a Public Rights of Way is just basically where the public can, can go. And so it includes sidewalks and street intersections, um, etc. Places open to the public, and particularly uh, for pedestrians, wheelchair users, etc. So they haven't issued this guideline, but they have a kind of best practices out there. 
And what those best practices say is that if you're doing a new street intersection, which is no, not all that common these days, but if you're like building a new town and you're putting in streets, you have to have accessible pedestrian signals at all four corners. All right? Now, if we're not talking about a wholly new construction, but we're talking about an alteration on a street, which is, you know, probably 85% of the time. So they have to put in an apps if they're changing the non-accessible pedestrian signal. And so if they mess with the non-accessible pedestrian signal, they have to replace it with an accessible pedestrian signal. Now, if neither of those two things happen, then an individual can make a request to their local transit agency and say, hey, I am a blind person or a visually impaired person, and I need an accessible pedestrian signal at these corners because that's where I walk. I walk to get the bus or I walk to go to the grocery store or whatever. And then the agency has to consider that. All right? Now, a lot of places don't, a lot of cities don't want to do this. Right? So you have to figure out who you need to talk to, whether if it's a city street, you have to talk to somebody in the city, probably transportation or public works department. If it's a county street, you'll have to talk to somebody in the county public works or transportation department. Somebody has a responsibility for this. And if it's the state, then there'll be a state department of transportation. Now, there are requirements in the Federal Highway Administration that in areas, metropolitan areas like this one, there's something called a metropolitan, um, God, I just forgot it, MPO, a Metropolitan Planning Organization. So we have one here. Um, it covers seven Minnesota counties uh, that include the Twin Cities of St. Paul, Minnesota. And they have to have uh, committees and advisory committees uh, to uh, make recommendations to the, the board of this uh, MPO. So the way to deal with these issues is to get on one of these boards, right? Again, you don't have to be an expert on accessible pedestrian signals or accessible paths of travel or public rights of way. The goal is to explain why we need what we need because people who aren't sighted have no idea, right? Next, in many jurisdictions, including this one, the National Federation of the Blind takes the position that a blind person with a white cane who has proper training in orientation and mobility ought to be able to cross any street, and so accessible pedestrian signals shouldn't be required. They're, they're, you know, they, they draw taxpayer resources and they're not needed. If you run into that, the argument to make is that that their argument is irrelevant. It is irrelevant because under the Americans with Disabilities Act, we are legally entitled to effective communication. So this is a civil right. And it's not only a broad right, but it's also very specific. For example, um, 
public jurisdictions who have 911 uh, calling capabilities, that capability has to work for deaf people using uh, text telephones or uh, TTDs uh, so that they can call in and not be discriminated against. All right? So we're entitled to argue that if a sighted pedestrian gets information from this non-accessible signal about when it's when you can cross or when it's uh, you have to shouldn't start because it's not, you're not going to get across in enough time, and this the street name and that stuff that blind and visually impaired people have a right to get the same thing. Otherwise, there's no equal communication, and it doesn't make any sense to say that you know sighted people need help crossing streets, but blind people don't. Right. Secondly, NFB can shoot itself in the foot where they uh, essentially say that, uh, well, generally speaking, accessible pedestrian signals aren't required. However, there are some intersections where because of ambient traffic noise or it's a street crossing in the middle of a street where, yes, we agree, accessible pedestrian signals are required. Well, once they do that, all right, They've opened the door, and you know, once they've got off their absolute uh, ideological stance, you can push the local government to say, well, you know, they admit sometimes they're necessary. So, you know, here's what we want you to do. So I think those are my, uh, my main uh, points, and I will pass the phone. Not the phone, Christ, the microphone. Yes, Mike, let's see. Okay. All right, there's lots of cord here, Lori, so just. So next up is Lori Scharf from Malvern, New York, um, out on Long Island to talk about some of what, she's been very active in this for longer than I have, and uh, she has a lot to share. So here you go, Lori. I'm right here. <laughs> Are you passing to me? Oh, you want to stay there? Okay. I, no, I can get up. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I actually, um, I'm going to talk briefly about Long Island and also some activities in New York City. Um, I'm the president of ACB of New York as well. And um, <clears throat> we have had two very polar opposite interactions within our state regarding accessible pedestrian signals. I'm going to start out for clarification purposes, um, which I did not initially tell Chris I was going to do, but um, accessible pedestrian signals, <clears throat> really um, the rapid tick feature, which, which Charlie spoke about briefly um, at the end of his presentation, currently is the acceptable standard within the MUTCD, the Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And that um, the Polara Navigator, as well as some other devices, also include a viral tactile feature, um, which allows you to have access to the same information. There's a viral tactile arrow that points in the direction of the path of travel, um, so you can use that in addition to the rapid tick sound. So, um, first, I'm going to briefly talk about what's called the 
pedestrians for accessible safe streets, which is what occurred in New York City several years ago when Mayor Bloomberg went from those little um, walk-don't-walk symbols into the universal picture grams that tell you walk and don't walk using figures. Um, When those devices were being implemented, our president then, Pratik Patel, wrote a letter to the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities, and out of that letter came a coalition, um, which now is a very successful coalition, and they meet, is it quarterly, Becky? I think it's quarterly. I should know this. I only heard it last month. Um, And that includes a large amount of stakeholders, including the National Federation of the Blind, Greater New York chapter, um, some guide dog users within the state of New York, and um, an orientation and mobility specialist um, who is very well known in the profession, Jean Berkwin. Um, And they meet regularly to dialogue. And they really had a victory um, in that area. I think it is critical, while we are experts as people who are blind or visually impaired, and I do apologize because I tend to say blind people, so I'm not doing it to offend people, just the way it rolls out of my mouth. Um, It is important to educate ourselves because while we are knowledgeable on the blind side of things, we don't always know the best practices in other areas. We may not understand why certain things are done the way they are. We, um, you know, for example, when we on Long Island started educating ourselves, the um, appropriate standard at that point was the walk, don't walk messages or the wait message. Um, Since that time, that has changed. So we have spent a great amount of time within our chapter since 2005 in educating ourselves. We went specifically in Nassau County, uh, Long Island, it's kind of misleading, Long Island actually includes Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk. Most people don't know that, um, but actually Brooklyn and Queens are part of the city, so we focused on on Nassau County, and we went to the Office for the Physically Challenged where they told us, well, you know, you blind people, you have to select a signal and agree that that signal is, you know, appropriate and yada, yada, yada. And we said, you know, that's not our job. Um, You know, we made the request for signals, and there are standards out there, and things kind of didn't go anywhere, and they dragged their feet. And we kept going to these meetings with them where attendance sheets were passed around and things like that. And we had members that were making requests in writing, which is, of course, the first step in requesting an accessible pedestrian signal. So we were educating our members. Our members were making requests. And we were having these meetings with Nassau County. And, you know, we basically... um, I'm sorry. Somebody's phone over there is distracting me. (laughs) Um, We basically decided we have to get things moving. And um, we did a freedom of information request to the county to see what we got back, knowing what our members had requested. And we got some of our members and we got some other requests back. And nothing was being done with these requests for accessible signals. So... um, We continued to, in our meeting minutes from our local meeting, 
maintained information what we talked about in the meeting and you know of course we keep up-to-date membership lists and finally we decided that we had to take legal action against the county which we did do in the Eastern District of New York and um, we just over a year ago received a ruling from the judge that basically said that blind and visually impaired people and deafblind people have the right to the same information as sighted pedestrians when it comes to knowing when to cross the street. Um, and that's really critical. I mean, I'm 41 years old and intersections have changed rather drastically in the last half of my life compared to when I started crossing streets. Um, you know, lead pedestrian intervals and things like that are all make it more imperative now than even 10 years ago for us to have that equality when it comes to information access. Um, so we um, proceeded with our action. We had our little victory, yeah, yeah, a year ago. And we still had some things to iron out. And this past November, we actually signed a um, consent decree with the court um, requiring that there be a moderator put into place and that the county has seven years to implement um, a plan of action for accessible pedestrian signals. Um, in addition to that, they also have to come up with a formal process for making requests and they have to work with us on um, basically um, you know informing us where things are moving um, so we um, just had our monitor approved um, our first two monitors were turned down by the county um, and then, oh, I'm sorry. The monitor basically is going to be kind of like a mediator between the county and us. And we are very lucky that we, the county agreed to have a mobility instructor be the monitor, which is fabulous. It's actually, uh, will be Jean Berkwin. Yeah. And <laughs> Becky says yes. Um, and... Uh, she wants to know when we're done. Can 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 she have him? He's retiring, so um, <clears throat> so he has committed to work with us for the next seven years in our implementation process, um, which is phenomenal. Uh, the county, on the other hand, was very upset about two weeks ago because the judge basically they went back into court and the county was told, "Look, you're dragging your feet," you know, and. Uh, you know, kind of move things along. So um, we're, we're still under the gun. We don't actually have any new installations yet, but we are hoping to, by the end of the year, have some installations. Um, <clears throat> you know, there is a strong, like I said, a strong component to educate our members regarding what, you know, sometimes people have wants, and those wants are not best practices. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I stood on a corner with the lawyers one day 
in a uh, and it was windy, 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 and you couldn't hear anything. And I said, I don't care that this wheelchair ramp goes in goes into a drain hole. I can walk over it. <laughs> and they told me, Laura, you can't say that if we ever go to court. And I said, but it's the truth. And you know, a lot of our corners we have very rounded corners in our county, which I don't know how common that is in other places. And so a lot of our wheelchair ramps go off into the middle of the street um, because we do have drains where they would ordinarily go. A lot of our poles need to be moved so that people using the vibral tactile feature can actually follow the path of travel. Um, You know, all of these things need to be taken into consideration. So it's not just about what you want. It's also about the other infrastructure. And, you know, that's kind of annoying, but it's the reality of it. Um, the, um, we, we have other intersections where we have grade crossings with the railroad. And um, because of the train, the lights all turn red. So it's an exclusive pedestrian phase. And it's two offset T intersections. You can't get much more complex than that. We have worked at educating, unfortunately, Nassau County engineers were not educated because they did not attend. We just held an event in May where we had uh, Janet Barlow from Access, oh my God, what is it, Access Design for the Blind, something like that, um, present along with Jean Berquin and um, Donna Sauerberger, who is a mobility instructor in the Maryland area, and Robert Emerson, who talked about quiet cars and the impact of vehicles on a person who's blind uh, ability to cross the street. And we had close to, I think it was 62 people at the end, and it was about one-third department engineers from either the county, Suffolk County, New York State Department of Transportation, and private engineering firms, one-third blind people, and deafblind people, and one-third um, mobility instructors that are um, either have been, some of them have been in the field for years. Actually, we had somebody come down from Westchester. And um, new uh, interns that were actually just starting the Hunter program. Um, so it was a phenomenal event, but all, everybody walked away talking the same language. And that is so important because the engineers were totally astounded when we started talking about things as blind pedestrians, things that they never thought about. And, you know, at one point I had mentioned, you know, that you, you, may be able to cross the minor street without an accessible pedestrian signal, but you need an accessible pedestrian signal to cross that major street. And they were like, but there's traffic on that street. Yeah, but that's why we need to know when it's safe to cross. They didn't get that. And they were really, um, you know, like it it was like an aha moment. and that actually, um, our, our, we did record that event, so it will be broadcast on ACB radio later this year. Um, and I think I'm going to shut up and uh, 
turn it back to Chris or Becky or? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> what we've been doing in Westchester County, which is the other side of New York City, uh, another suburban area. And I live in a village that it's about 9,000 people. It's a pretty much a bedroom community, but it has a nice walkable downtown area if you can get to it safely. Um, and it's intersected by two state highways. Those are the main drags through Mount Kisco, east and west and north and south. And most of the county and village roads run across those state routes. So when we started requesting accessible signals, um, we first went to the State Department of Transportation for our district and spoke with them and explained. And they, they were familiar with both the law and what they were. They just kind of hadn't you know gotten around to it. So um, in Westchester County, White Plains is the county seat, and White Plains still has the cuckoo chirp signals. First generation. The first generation. Actually, it's maybe the half a generation. Um, anyway, they still have those. They have installed uh, a couple of speaking ones, um, and there are a couple other locations in Westchester County that do have some signals, um, but we kind of started in Mount Kisco because for the town that small, there are like eight blind people, blind and visually impaired people who use those intersections to get to main services and in, in, in Mount Kisco. So um, we contacted, we first started with our local state assemblyman and also one of our local council people. And we finally connected with someone in the State Department of Transportation in our district who actually did listen to us and evaluate the intersections and promised us five signals, one of which was installed two years ago this month, and the next four are due in 2018. And they call that prioritization. So, um, but in the interim, we were impressed by the activities of the past coalition that, um, that was referred, that Lori referred to in New York City and decided that we would like to form something like that in Westchester County. The Westchester Council of the Blind, which is a chapter of ACB of New York, um, decided that we would like to put together a coalition, something like PASS. And, you know, every locality, every county is different. You kind of have to look at what the culture of your county is in terms of how you deal with getting things done. Um, who's in charge, who wants to be in charge, who thinks they're in charge, you know. So, um, but we were able to form a coalition which includes two people from the State Department of Transportation, um, a county rep representative from the County Department of Transportation, and we have the County Office for the Disabled, Guiding Eyes for the Blind is on it, is part of the coalition because I work there, so I'm on it. Um, <laughs> We have uh, a number of other, other people involved um, on the coalition, and we've hosted two events, both of which are what we refer to as staged, staged street crossing events. And what we have done, and we did this first in White Plains, um, we, we were out on a corner, we had some O&M instructors and some guide dog instructors, and we offered people the opportunity to cross the street with, there was an intersection that had a pedestrian signal going across the main street, but not across the side street. 
So what we did was we would ask people to put a blindfold on. We would give them a white cane and a O&M instructor. We didn't send them off on their own. You can get sued for that. So um, so what we did was, we and, and the first person to do it was our, the, our representative from the State Department of uh, Transportation. His name is Jim. He was the first one to do it. And he came back and he was like, okay, I really do get it now. You know, I really do get it now. So, you know, we were able to, you know, make some noise. We got local media coverage on our local cable channels, news channels, and then in the newspapers. Um, we, we were able to put together uh, a good press on it. So that, was, so that was last spring. And then this past June, we did another one in the city of Yonkers, lost in Yonkers. You remember that? Um, and they have no pedestrian signals, and they are redeveloping their whole riverfront area to make it something that people want to come to. Um, and Yonkers has, has a lot of work to do. There's really no question about that. But um, we decided to host another event, and there again we invited um, officials from the city of Yonkers, as we had done for the city of White Plains, only the Yonkers ones actually showed up. So we had a couple of traffic engineers. We had... Some a couple of council people from the city of Yonkers who came and exp and we had no accessible signals for them to find out what they're like, so you know they had they came away with an understanding um, again of what this all is about. But the White Plains and Yonkers are pretty good sized communities. They're you know the, the villages and the rural areas where people live. It's it's a little bit different, and one of the issues that we're having. Um, in northern Westchester where Mount Kisco is, is if they're going to, and they've already illegally installed a couple of intersect, uh, traffic signals um, and you know, when I called them on it they said, well yeah we did. And I'm like that's really not an answer. Um, but what, what, we're, what we, we keep coming up against is that they will say, well we can make the changes on the state road but the village has to give us permission to use the right, their right-of-way in order to make the changes on the village road. Um, if it's a state and a county road, we don't have too much problem because they say they're on board. But when it comes to the smaller municipalities and the villages, that, that has become an issue that they're, they're using um, and to delay this. And just as an aside note, this is pretty funny. There's a street near where I live that is, it's, it crosses the state road. It has a traffic signal, but it doesn't have a walk signal at all for, for crossing this road, which is a made, it's a village road, but it goes into our local Target and A&P or Stop and Shop and all of that. So it's a busy, busy road with semis going up and down it, and you have to cross it from where I live to get to Target or anything, Applebee's or anything up there. So um, we've all been talking about how dangerous it is. The state people have looked at it, yeah, we know it's dangerous. That's one of the ones we've been promised. Well, about a month ago, there was a little blurb on the news that, Mar that Governor Cuomo had given Mount Kisco a grant to build a pedestrian bridge across that road. And we're like, that's millions of dollars. It would cost you, a th it would cost you an eighth that to put in an accessible signal. Really? And you want to build a pedestrian bridge that's going to require the longest ramp in captivity to get wheelchairs over it? Or are you going to dig a tunnel underneath? I mean, make up my mind. So, you know, we don't really know what's happening. When I went back to the state and said, did you see this? They said, what? 
So we don't know what's going to happen. But in the day-to-day process of advocating for something that you need, um, you can't let up. You have to keep on talking about it. You have to keep on showing people, and Chris alluded to this, you have to keep on showing people why you need what you need. And, you know, the question always comes up, does somebody have to die before you're going to listen to us? Um, My husband has almost been hit twice, and once the police were there, and, you know, ticketed the person that almost hit him. Now, that's a situation. Sometimes it's a situation where the person who almost hit him would have almost hit him whether whether there was an accessible signal or not because they weren't paying attention. And that's a whole other can of worms. But we can cut the whole thing in half if we can at least make sure that we have access to the same information that sighted people have. So... Um, so that's um, that's what's going on in Westchester, and I think it might be fairly similar to what kind the kinds of things that go on in more suburban or rural areas in, in around the country. Some people, you know, are very successful in getting a signal put up in their community because it's a small town and everybody knows each other, and they go and they do it. Um, other people, you know, they say, "Fine, we'll put a blind person crossing sign up there, and that should take care of it." Yeah, that's that's lovely. So we have about 25 minutes. And well, wait, hold, hold on. My friend Lori here has some comments to make, and then we will open it up for questions. Lori, uh, sorry about this. I should have said this in the beginning. Our um, when we did our lawsuit on Long Island, we um, Becky reminded me when she was talking that we chose to focus on intersections that we had requested and then after we had made the request they went under construction through a new york state department of transportation grant and they moved poles they put in poles where they're they moved one pole actually 30 feet away from the corner um yeah um must have to have a long arm to use the vibral tactile feature on that one and the people involved in our lawsuit, it is uh, myself, Lori Scharf, Mike Adino. I'm totally blind. Mike's got some vision. Ed Malloy, who is deafblind, and the Long Island Council of the Blind. So we focused on the three of us because we live within a mile and a half of each other, and the corridor that was being modified runs right through our two towns from one state road to another state road. We actually have accessible signals on one of those state roads because they've been requested. Um, And we also, as the Long Island Council of the Blind, did honor our New York State Department of Transportation at a fundraising event one year um, and did a ribbon cutting, actually, at one of the accessible pedestrian signals, which the state was so proud to actually stand with an organization at an intersection that did not involve a pedestrian death. So think about that when you do get your pedestrian signals. Remember to go back and thank them for the work that they've done. Yeah, that, that, that is a really important uh, piece of this puzzle is, is thanking them. The other, there's a couple of other things to keep in mind. There is plenty of information out there that people can access to get information. There's the Pedestrian Safety Handbook right on the ACB website, and it has all kinds of links to both case studies and stories and the Manual for uh, Universal uniform, <coughs> uniform Traffic Design 
Um, it has all of that on there. It's a great resource. Um, and the other, the other thing is that people like Jean Berkwin, Janet Barlow, Lucas Frank, um, Donna Sauerberger, um, there are others around the country who are totally invested in this process and are more than happy to offer you support and resources and information and helping you get uh, information out there. Um, tap into those resources just to help you make sure um, that you fully understand the ramifications other than as a person who can't see what's going on um, if you need to do that. Either of you have any further yeah, comments? Either. Okay. Yeah, there you go. I do a real good job catching. Uh, so I, I wanted to add that there are some other sources of information uh, that you can get from your government in addition uh, to what has already been said. Um, I believe that jurisdictions, or counties at least, have to keep pedestrian uh, vehicle uh, crash information and, and mortality information. And that's real important to get because that helps to argue when you're, when you're talking about specific intersections, you know, when you can show that, uh, you know, three people in the last two years have been killed at an intersection, it doesn't matter whether they're blind or not, but you need a light, okay? If you're going to put in a light, then you have to put in an accessible pedestrian signal. Also, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, state and local governments were required to create what's called a transition plan uh, in which they identify physical barriers to access. And that includes uh, accessible pedestrian signals. So, for example, the state of Minnesota in 2014 redid their transition plan and very kindly uh, had all of the regions in Minnesota, all those offices, assess uh, their compliance at each, inter at each intersection within their jurisdiction. So, for example, Minnesota, Minnesota likes to think that we're, you know, really special, hot stuff. So what the State Department of Transportation actually provided documentation on was that only 18% of their curb ramps were in compliance. This is 26 years later, right? Um, they also said that uh, they would probably be able to install uh, accessible pedestrian signals on, on state roads by 2037. Um, you know, I'm 65 now, so I figure 2037 is going to be kind of a stretch for me. But um, so, you know, that's, that's really useful data. I mean, they kind of laid out how screwed up they've been. Um, so I would suggest, as has been suggested, if you have a state data practices law, Freedom of Information Act, to request all that information um, because it will make your case uh, much easier. And also what I like about what, uh, what Becky and Lori talked about is, you know, one way to put pressure on bureaucrats and politicians is to get news coverage. Um, and, you know, a chapter, uh, an affiliate, can get news coverage by issuing a press release and by 
you know, perhaps getting a local reporter to come out and, uh, you know, film trying to cross a street blindfolded with a regular pedestrian, non-accessible signal. Um, uh, Eric Bridges was very successful in doing this in his taxi cab litigation in Washington, D.C., where cabs would pass people that had service animals. Um, so media it can work really well um, because uh, one thing politicians don't like to have happen is to be shown to be uh, not doing their job. Um, so that's another thing. So now let's open it up for questions. I'm sorry. All right, all right, all right. See what happens when you get talking about this. They think you're just going to talk about accessible signals, and all of a sudden, all this other stuff comes up. Um, but it's good stuff. So, Lori? I am one of those weird people that reads policy stuff. And something that drives me crazy is the Department of Justice and their little documents that they put out about these agreements that they have with jurisdictions. And anybody who has looked at these documents will notice that they include all different other aspects of government accessibility. And this is kind of following up with what Chris was saying. They talk about the route of travel between the parking lot and the entrance to the building, the height of the counters in the building, which are all very important things. They don't talk about accessible pedestrian signals. When you have one in your state come out, as the advocacy organization for blind people, go to the Department of Justice and ask them why it's not covered. Project Civil Access. Oh, I'm sorry. So this is called Project Civil Access, and the Department of Justice has gone to hundreds of jurisdictions and done these uh, ADA compliance reviews uh, from uh, you know A to Z. Uh, and you know, Lori's right. Um, but you can file a complaint with uh, DOJ, the Disability Rights Section. Um, Bear in mind that they will probably refer that complaint over to the Federal Highway Administration because that's the uh, federal agency that has jurisdiction uh, over this. But the more they get, they, they, but they, they have the right to retain those complaints. So the more you, the more you file, the more likely it is that they're going to get it. They'll start to understand it's, it's an issue. All right. I'm going to... Okay, I might have understood wrong, but my, oops, sorry, my understanding was that when a new signal, maybe that was only for one one location, when a new signal, uh, when the intersection is a new intersection or it's changed and the lights are changed, that it needs to be an accessible signal. Was that a um, a national law or? Or is that was that for a particular state or county? It's a it's 
Did everybody hear the question? Okay. So it's not yet a law. It is a, a, a proposed guideline. And one of the problems in this area is that the way the system works is that the Access Board publishes guidelines. Uh, and then the guidelines don't have the effect of law. They don't become ADA standards until the Department of Justice adopts them or adopts them with modifications. So, uh, you know, the Access Board put out 2004 uh, revisions to its accessibility guidelines, and the Department of Justice uh, finally reviewed them in, in 2010. So these things don't go quickly. But, um, yeah, the, the, it, the document you want to look at uh, is on the U.S. Access Board's uh, website, and you search for, um, what is it? Uh, yeah, public, public rights of way, all right? And you, you'll see the proposed guidelines, which they've been working on for 25 years. Yes, that's right. Other questions? Tell me. Thanks. Um, this is Doug. Um, I have actually two questions. One is, uh, do, um, when someone requests a signal, and an intersection that's not being renovated. Um, they request, you know, they request it, and then an engineer goes out and looks at a, an intersection that has already been evaluated and already has a, a visual signal. And then they ask the, uh, the blind person who's requesting it uh, how often they use this. And they also uh, signal, if, if they approve signalization with an APS, they do it not on the whole intersection, but only the intersection that the blind person is actually using. Is that acceptable? It's acceptable. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the other, when I, when I was talking to a, a, a state engineer, and said, you know, why, you know, it makes no sense, you know, if there, if it's already been deemed a, a visual signal is necessary at, a, at an intersection and it's being renovated, uh, why, you know, it, it, sh it should have a, a, an APS. And he said, well, it's purely a budget thing. Yes, and the project that we have identified in our lawsuit with Nassau County, if they had done the signal installation <laughs> installation um, at the time the and and other renovations as well, they would have received money back from the federal government, and because they did not put those requests, did not put accessible pedestrian signals in place, they did not receive that additional money. So now that they have to retrofit, they're going to wind up paying out more money. So, but they still have no choice. They, they still have no choice, right. 
One of the things that's important to, to think about or, and to try to communicate is that while we in the blind community are at the forefront of this effort to get accessible pedestrian signals, in the, in the long run, we're not the only ones who are going to benefit from them. Um, and, you know, we all hear that as the population ages, um, that vision loss is becoming more and more prominent. But there are other people who, other sectors of the community um, who are going to benefit from those being there. And ultimately, even, you know, sighted people who experience them will say that it's helpful. Another question? Hi, my name is Liz. Um, I had contacted my local government, specifically the engineering and street department. Um, I was almost hit in an intersection, and it was, I guess, compliant, but it wasn't audible. Um, but the timing was too quick. And when I actually had gotten downtown, I never realized <laughs> how inaccessible our town was and when I say that there is not one push button and there's about 12 to 14 lights and all it has is the flashing walk don't walk so this is Lori so what that tells me is and I'm not an engineer by far believe me um, that your lights in your municipality are not pedestrian activated so that means as a pedestrian you do not have to call the light to have it change they use other ways of changing their lights it could be that it's being done remotely by a traffic engineering department um, it could be that when three cars pull up to the light then it changes the light the other direction um, you know so there's a lot of things this is an area where you could educate yourself with your engineering department and talk about this. Um, you do not have the right to request an accessible pedestrian signal, and it is an accessible pedestrian signal, not audible. Um, an accessible pedestrian signal is not required where a, um, where, you know, where they do not wish pedestrians to walk. walk. So for example, you might cross a p going east-west <clears throat> And there may be no, no crosswalk there and no push button. And they could tell you, no, you have to cross, you know, at the, at a, at a specific, at the opposite side of the intersection. So you may have to cross the secondary road before you cross the primary road because that's the safer location in the eyes of the engineering department to cross. Um, you know, so it, it's kind of, it's, there's a lot of educating yourself and educating them as well. Um, but, um, I don't, oh, your, your distance question. Um, there is, you can request as a person with a disability that there's a formula that the engineering department uses to, um, it has to do with feet per second, like how many feet per second the average person walks. You can request that that timing be changed. Now, they may tell you, oh, no, if we do that, you know, they're gonna, you're going to cause a traffic backup. Um, you know, you have to be within reason. A lot of times in the city of Chippewa... One, one moment, just wait for the microphone. Oh, he's right here. 
Uh, just to elaborate on that, too, is in our city, I'm Scott, but I'm her husband. In our city, actually, a lot of the, t- uh, the lights are actually timed. They're not actually... Right, so they're act- not pedestrian they're not activated. Pedest- yeah, they're not right. pedestrian activated, nor are they, are they like a motion sense. And a lot of times, um, like she was kind of elaborating on, every street corner has the walk and don't walk signal. Mm-hmm. It's just the matter of that they don't like to... Um, like she said, the, the, the timing is way off on those. You don't even yeah, have enough time to get across the road. It's becoming more and more common for um, traffic departments to be able to remotely control their lights. Um, so the timing, like you're saying, your lights are all timed. They can also change the timing on those lights depending on the time of day it is. Or if it's an evacuation route, they can totally change the lights altogether if there's an evacuation. Or emergency vehicles can, or, or also sometimes um, municipal vehicles for the, the state or the county can change the lights in their favor if need be. So these are all things that affect us as pedestrians that we have to be aware of. I've got, um, I'm the, uh, on our access committee for uh, our our transportation system in Austin, the advisory committee, and our metro, our transit system and our city have installed some transit-only lights, and what they are apparently, they're traffic light, but part of the cycle is only a go for the buses. Has anybody seen that, and how in the world do you work them? This is Lori. That is common also in places where they have, um, I'm going to not use the right name, but, you know, like light rail or something that runs along the street, street as well that s- shares the street surface along with vehicles. Uh, and I, I really can't answer the, your, your specific question, but that is something also that affects us as blind pedestrians, yes. So remember that this right that we are seeking rests upon what pedestrian access is granted to sighted people. So yes, you can have intersections where, you know, buses only and you know, that's not a violation because they don't have the, they don't have a pedestrian signal there. And so you can't say, well, if you, put a, put, you have a pedestrian signal, you need to have an accessible pedestrian signal. No pedestrian signal. We don't have a right to an accessible one. All right? Um, and, you know, in my arguments with the local jurisdictions here, one of the things I said is, well, you know, we can't afford to put in all these accessible pedestrian signals because, you know, we got signals where we, we really don't expect anybody to cross but they still have pedestrian signals. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, oh, it's just cheaper to put the, the pedestrian signal in there when we're putting in a traffic light. I said, okay, so stop doing that. <laughs> you know, stop hitting your head on the wall. I mean, that's just something they voluntarily do, and then they create this obligation, and then they complain about the obligation. It's, 
Anybody else have a question? Um, so, our, um, I mean, I guess I've seen them in Seattle. Is a, um, a vibrator device, you know, I mean, are they getting to be commonly available where you can, you know, feel a vibration thing for crossing the street, especially on noisy streets? Yes, well, that, when the manual on uniform traffic control devices requires that you have a vibrating arrow that is activated when the walk, uh, don't walk, uh, tick, tick, tick operates. And that's for uh, people who are deaf and blind, so they may not hear the hear the uh, audible signal, but they can feel this um, button, and when it vibrates, it, it tells them that it's safe to cross, and it tells them the direction to cross. So that's part of the, the legal uh, requirement. Um, the other thing, too, Lori just pointed out about those vibrating, those tactile arrows is there are plenty of times at intersections when you can't hear yourself think, let alone hear the, uh, yeah, the weed whacker, the, the semi, the railroad trussle, the trussle, the train going by, high winds, any number of things that can affect how you actually hear traffic. So those tactile arrows are, are not, they, while they certainly are something that you would want people who are deaf and blind to have access to. They're not the only ones that benefit from that. <clears throat> so I think we're on. Also remember under the ADA that drivers are required to maintain accessible features. So sometimes, like everything else, these accessible pedestrian signals stop working. Well, they can't, so. just not, they can't just stop working. You can call up the government and say, hey, fix it. So okay, thank, you. thank you all for coming. Thank you, Lori and Chris, and also Charlie, who is at another meeting. But for your, for your expertise, thank you all for your great questions. Um, the more people you can get to work with you on these things, the stronger your, uh, your case becomes. Um, use the resources that are available. Ask questions. Contact any of us. Sure. Thank you very much for coming.